Our Father, we thank you for this day in which we specifically remember the fathers, the grandfathers, the great-grandfathers, those that you have raised up to be the leaders of the home, to provide the priesthood of the family. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done, how faithful you are as our Heavenly Father. Every day is Father's Day in the sense that you are our Heavenly Father to provide us with the protection, the strength, the direction, and ultimately that salvation that we will all experience in fullest when we reach the other side. We're thankful, Lord, that today we can invoke your presence here this morning to guide our thinking, to lead us in our study through the Word of God. We're thankful, Lord, for the truth which lies before us. And I pray, Father, that we will penetrate that mine and be able to extract the ore, the jewels, that will enable us to become uh, the priests, the uh, individuals you want us to be for your kingdom here on this earth. Even in these very trying times, we know you will be faithful to us. Now, Father, we commit this time to you and praise you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last uh, two weeks ago, we finished up the narrative of Noah and the great flood. And we looked at an event which, as far as we know, is the greatest catastrophe that has struck the earth up to this point, at least during its time of human habitation. And I think through it all, we have to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Obviously, he is the one who brought the great disaster for his plan and for his purpose. And there was really nothing that mankind could do about it. I'd like to uh, turn for a moment before we plunge into chapter 10 and read a, a brief passage from Isaiah chapter 54, which I think relates to this transition from the world that God destroyed in the flood to the world that grew from the descendants of Noah, his children, his grandchildren, and so on, and the great table of nations as we'll be beginning to look at today. But in Isaiah chapter 54, we have some very interesting words by the prophet, beginning in verse 4. Isaiah 54, 4. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, with the great, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, 
but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Disasters may come, tragedies may come, small or great, and what seems to be a great disaster in one person's life, of course, is not even experienced sometimes by others. The worldwide disaster that swept the earth in the great flood of Noah impacted the entire human race. There was not a living soul on this planet was not impacted by that great flood. But you and I often daily, and maybe not daily, but many times in our lives, have similar seeming tragedies in our lives, problems and trials and tribulations. And we must remember in it all that the God who brought this great disaster, this catastrophe that swept across this planet, for his plan and for his purpose, by his sovereign power, is the same God who has compassion upon us. It's the same God who loves us with, an, with a love beyond our comprehension, who knows every problem of our lives, who is there with us in the trials and the difficulties, the, quote, disasters that may come into our lives. And yet, because we are his children, there is a covenant between you, between me and him. And that covenant, he says, will not be shaken. My covenant of peace... Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. And that peace has been given to us by our God, the same God who brought this calamity on the planet. And no matter how difficult our life may seem, the God of peace is our God. He has not forsaken us. And it says that the one who has spoken is the Lord who has compassion on you. The Lord has compassion on us each day of our lives. And sometimes we may feel deserted, and sometimes we feel like we ought to be deserted because we have not walked as we should walk. But the Lord is patient, and the Lord continues to work with us, to draw us to himself. I mean, he was patient with the earth. He could have destroyed the entire earth. I mean, we wouldn't even be here had he decided to destroy it all. But he had a plan. And in that plan, he saw you and he saw me in the very beginning when he uh, laid the foundation of the world. In fact, we're told that our salvation is rooted before the foundation of the world. And, and with that knowledge, it should help us to be strong in the Lord, even when we face the, the bumps in the road and the deviations that may come along and sometimes an uncertain future and that light at the end of the tunnel, which turns out to be the proverbial onrushing train. God doesn't change. From this we understand both that God is sovereign and God is immutable. God has all things in his hands and God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the God of Noah is our God, the God who had compassion upon Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets and, and, and the men and women of the Old Testament is the God who is our God. And we, I think it's really important for us to keep putting ourselves into the pages of Scripture and to realize that God loves us and knows us as well as he knew David, as well as he knew Deborah, as well as he knew John the Baptist or whatever person you might want to name. And we're just as important to him because the scripture teaches us that God is no respecter of persons.
And he doesn't hold up one individual and say, you're really great and my, my love and my compassion and all my blessings are going to be upon you because you're a great person, but this poor lowly individual over here who doesn't know how to do anything but maybe pray, I'm just not going to do No, that's not the way God is. And I think we need to constantly remind ourselves of that because I don't know if you're like I am. Sometimes I feel like, well, I, I think we probably all honestly feel unworthy of God's love and of his grace and of his presence in our lives. But his presence isn't based upon our worthiness, but of course on the worthiness of Christ who indwells us. And so as we move on into chapter 10, I hope that this truth will be affixed in our minds. As we go through chapter 10, we don't find as many, quote, spiritual events or, or accounts. Uh, when we get to Nimrod, of course, we're going to see uh, uh, some rather significant truths relative to the curse that continued on the planet even after the great flood of Noah. But let's turn to the 10th chapter of the book of Genesis. We have, as we look at this particular passage, which is often called the Table of Nations, and sometimes it's called that at the, in the heading of your, of your uh, Bible, uh, many of the commentaries refer to the 10th chapter in this way. But we have a unique document before us here. Unique in the sense that you will find nothing like it in any of the ancient literature of peoples of the world other than the Hebrews. There is no other document which attempts to define the nations and peoples of the world as this document does. And of course, no other document could do that because it has been inspired by the sovereign God. Now, we don't know whether Moses had any documentary sources for this. Did Moses have some writing that, that he read and, and that he used as his source? It isn't important whether he did or not because the ultimate source of this information was the sovereign God. And, and, of course, that's the understanding we have of the whole doctrine of inspiration. Whatever source, a literal physical source, may be, have been used by any of the biblical writers, the ultimate source was God. And, and whatever error might have been in a document or a source that might have been used uh, in, in the preparation and the presentation of the Word of God as we see it today, we have to believe that it was inerrant as given by God because God is not capable of giving error. He is not capable of making error. The table of nations could be looked upon as sort of a horizontal genealogy of Noah. Horizontal in the sense that we're talking about a geographical distribution rather than a historical lineage specifically in this particular passage. And it seems to, to have as its primary purpose to give to us the origin of the 70 major people groups or tribes or whatever you may wish to call them that uh, ultimately inhabited the ancient Near East. And certainly it would have to be defined that from them came the other people groups of the world as we see them scattered around the planet today. It's very difficult to trace the lineage of the various peoples of the world. Uh, ethnologists and anthropologists and linguists and all these different individuals ha have attempted and are attempting to trace the backgrounds of the various peoples of the world. You know, where do the Chinese come from? 
uh, where do the Slavic peoples come from? Where do the Germans come from? Where, you know, whatever you might, uh, group you might refer to. How far back in time can you trace them and, and how are they linked one to the other? And of course, it seems that the best hope that has been offered is to trace linguistically the uh, ancestry of these people, but it's difficult to do, very difficult to do, because unfortunately these ancient peoples didn't leave lots of documents around uh, to do this. And of course, many ancient languages were never written and hence have been lost except whatever words have been perpetuated down through subsequent languages that have developed. And so I think we have here uh, the best source that exists in terms of the background of the human race. It doesn't explain to us how red and yellow, black and white, you know, came into existence, but we can assume how that came as we think about, and we've already talked about a little bit, the uh, genetic ability of the human race to diversify. And as I mentioned before, I believe within the genes of Adam and Eve, the, the chromosomal matter was the possibility for the great uh, uh, deviation or, or variation that you find amongst the human race today. Whatever were the environmental factors, whatever were the cosmic factors, whatever were the chemical factors, what other things that might have influenced this seems to have been there from the beginning. Now the list that we have in the 10th chapter of Genesis is certainly not exhaustive in the sense that uh, all of the grandsons of Noah and great-grandsons of Noah are listed. It certainly is not. But it seems to be exhaustive as far as what's important for us to know, what we need to know. And of course, whenever you see things like 7 and 77 and 70 and, and, and uh, 40, these kinds of numbers, we always have this feeling that the number is given because of its connection through Scripture to, you know, the idea of perfection and, and all of this. And many commentators will, will do that. They'll say, well, there's 70 and there's groups of seven because the author who wrote this down wanted to show the spiritual relationships here. I think you can push that too far to the point that, you know, it's sort of like you, you're, you're force-fitting things into a preconceived mold. I don't think that's true here. But we, we do see, for example, as we'll read the first few verses of chapter 10 in a moment, that uh, seven of Javan's sons, for example, Japheth's, not Javan, Japheth's sons are mentioned, but only two of them are mentioned to have sons, and those sons being mentioned. Well, certainly of the seven sons of Japheth, they probably all had sons and daughters but only the sons of two of them are mentioned because probably those are the only ones that are significant as far as this table of nations is concerned. And probably the others did not contribute to people groups who became ident specifically identifiable as a separate people group. Certainly that probably is one of the reasons. Now I think it's important for us to note that although only sons and grandsons are mentioned here, it does not mean, therefore, that there were no daughters and granddaughters. Obviously, if, if there were not daughters and granddaughters, we wouldn't be here today. And it doesn't mean that the daughters and granddaughters weren't important. 
It simply means that this was a patriarchal society, as most of the ancient societies were, and therefore the lineage for the purpose of tracing descent was given through the male line. I don't think there was any purposeful attempt here to, to set women aside and say they're not important. It's just that this is how the lineage was traced amongst those ancient peoples. As we're going to see, it's very hard to define this table of nations, either ethnically or geographically. It's really hard to say that this name refers to this people who lived in this place, and from them came these peoples. It'd be nice if we could do that. Now, we can uh, specifically identify some ethnically and geographically, but not all. And sometimes it's hard to identify the interrelationships. Some map makers of referring to this particular passage will place all of these people groups within a, a, a radius of 1,500 miles of Jerusalem. Others will put them much further out. They'll put some of them clear up in what is today the Soviet Union or off into Western Europe or some such place. Others keep them all within a, a fairly small radius of, uh, of Jerusalem, really not much farther than Greece and, and Iran and southern Arabia. Let's look at the first five verses of Genesis chapter 10. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. The sons and sons were born to them after the flood. Notice, not on the ark, not before the flood, but after the flood. Thinking about that for a minute, you have to believe that this indicates divine intervention. Because if there were no children born to the three sons of Noah before the flood, during the flood, and not until after the flood, God must have intervened because they didn't have all the contraceptive methods that are available to us today. And they wouldn't have had any particular reason if they had them to, to prevent children from coming. Certainly, you know, they were on the ark for a full year. You know, with the situation being what it was and the uh, probable fertility in those days being much higher than it is today, it has to be because God said there will be no children born. Uh, until after the flood. Now, this statement doesn't mean, of course, categorically, that there were no children born before the flood. It says that, uh, and sons were born to them after the flood, and, and they're named. If others were born, they could have been daughters, they could have been unimportant, but that doesn't seem very likely, does it? It seems to imply there were no children until after the flood, and God would have been responsible for that being true. The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog, and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshech and Tyrus. And the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. And the sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. I think we'll just do each little group at a time here and not try to run down through all these names at once. Now this specific passage, as it indicates in the first verses there, deals only with the sons and some of the grandsons of Japheth. It would seem, and most biblical 
ethnologists believe that Japheth's seven sons were the tribal patriarchs of the great Indo-European uh, group of people. The peoples who would ultimately populate Europe and uh, parts of Western Asia Minor. I, I mean Western Asia. In attempting to identify the nations listed here, some have gone back to other ancient sources. Some, for example, have reverted to the writings of uh, Herodotus, let's say. Now, Herodotus is extremely well known in the uh, area of literature and history because he was the first historian to try to go beyond logography to, to actually produce genuine history. In other words, he wasn't just a, 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 a diary maker, somebody who listed in chronological order a bunch of things which happened. Rather, he tried to trace themes. And, and, and his book, which is called The History of the Greek and Persian Wars, he, he tried to show why it was the Persians and the Greeks clashed. What brought them together in this great collision of civilizations? And so he goes back uh, and uh, tries through studies of geography and history and whatever material was available to him to, to try to show why this inevitably came about. And so as a result, he talks about things like ancient Babylon. He talks about the sources of the Nile. He talks about people who walk around upside down. You know, all kinds of hearsay stuff. And Herodotus is not known for being a scientific historian. It's like he took everything he heard and put it in his book. You know, today we'd say, well, that's called the Inquirer <laughs> or <laughs> something else that you might buy at the checkout stand. Hopefully not. <clears throat> but, you know, and that's why uh, Thucydides, who was a contemporary of Herodotus or almost contemporary, made some rather uh, critical remarks about Herodotus, referring to his history as being largely bunk, uh, which, of course, <laughs> Uh, that's probably where Henry Ford got the idea that all history is bunk. But um, Herodotus, as far as we know, had no contact with the Hebrew Scriptures. And thus any information, quote unquote, which he had would simply be from legendary sources. And so his attempt to try to trace back to the roots uh, the peoples that were behind the Persians and behind the Greeks and ancestral to all of this would be based largely on legend. But there was another individual who was a first century, now Herodotus lived back in the fifth century BC, first century AD, uh, whose information I think is a whole lot more trustworthy. And, and that's the Jewish historian Josephus. Now, Josephus for a long time was not held in very high esteem by historians. But in the 20th century, he has sort of come back because many of the things which he said have proven to be pretty accurate. And of course, when it comes to some things like the history of the Jewish wars, he was there. I mean, he was a general in charge of some of the forces in Galilee. He ought to have known, even though he had a, a specific purpose in writing his books, and that was to try to defend his Jewishness and defend the Jewish people and to defend his own actions relative to them. Uh, but all history is biased. All writing is biased. 
if you find a book that's not biased, you find a book that's not written by a human being. And so, you know, obviously you, you take that into, into account. Josephus dealt directly with this passage that we're looking at here. That's one of the nice things about Josephus. He sort of writes a commentary right along with the Old Testament. Uh, some of it is, of course, just simply repeating what the Old Testament says. Other cases, he does insert a few things along the way. Now, according to Josephus, uh, I'm going to read directly from a passage in his Antiquities from his book one. And Josephus says these things relative to this passage. Now, they were the grandchildren of Noah, in honor of whom names were imposed on the nations by those that first seized upon them. Japheth, the son of Noah, had seven sons. They inhabited so that, beginning at the mountains of Taurus and Ammonus, they proceeded along Asia as far as the river Tanais, and along Europe to Cadiz, and settling themselves on the lands which none had inhabited before, they called the nations by their own names. For Gomer founded those whom the Greeks now call Galatians, Gauls. But they call, call themselves Gomerites. Magog founded those that from him were called Magogites, but who are now called by the Greeks Scythians. Now as to Javan and Madai, from Madai came the Medeans, who are called the Medes by the Greeks, but from Javan, Ionia, and all the Grecians are derived. Now, we, we cannot think of Josephus as the ultimate source of, of information or background, but we can consider him an important, his, his contribution, and an important one to our understanding of this material. After all, it's a lot closer to the source than we are, by 2,000 years almost. Now, even so, he was long removed from the actual event that's recorded here, 3,000, 4,000 years, who knows when the flood took place. Some date the flood as recently as the third millennium BC, others much before that. Whatever is the case, he was closer to uh, the um, source than we are today. And again, I, I've mentioned this before. Uh, it really bugs me, the arrogance of modern scholarship, that modern scholars feel so often that they know so much more than the ancients did, and therefore they try to revise history. And, and they say, this is what really happened, and this is why it really happened, regardless of what the ancients said, who may have lived during the time. And, you know, that's a little disturbing. Sure, we may come on some other information, we may have some extra sources, but I don't think that gives us a right to uh, basically read or write out of history those who were eyewitnesses, or at least were a lot closer to the time than we are today. And in some areas, the ancient sources are coming back as... Uh, important. Today, many believe that from Gomer came the Cimmerians, C-I-M-M-E-R-I-A-N-S. These were people who originally inhabited southern Russia. And if you study the history of Russia, you'll discover that in trying to put together where the Slavic peoples came from and how the first uh, Russian kingdom came into existence, you have to talk about the Cimmerians and the Scythians who superseded them. 
the, and, and the Sarmatians and, and many other peoples who lived in the steppes of Russia. The steppes of Russia were quite a uh, sort of a fountainhead of, of many peoples of the ancient world. The Sumerians, C-I-M-M, -M, <laughs> a lot of names that are very similar here, Sumerians and Samarians and Sumerians, and, but they are very different peoples. Uh, these people were ultimately chased out of the plains of Russia by the Scythians, and they were driven down into Asia Minor, where for several generations they dominated Asia Minor in the first millennium B.C. If Josephus is right, these people became the ancestors of the Celts. And the Celts, of course, were known, in, were, were called Galatians in Asia Minor, and they had various names as you go all the way across to England. The Celtic peoples established a civilization that reached all the way from Asia Minor to the islands of the, to the British Isles. And, and Celtic stock probably uh, is in the background of many of us here today. Uh, the Celtic peoples uh, are often referred to simply as Germans, but, but German, the, the term German is, is more encompassing than the term Celt alone. And the term Celt alone is more encompassing than the term German, if you follow my drift. What I'm saying is both words have been expanded to include more than just identifying one directly with the other. Some, therefore, have associated the name Gomer with the name Germany in the broad sense of the term, not meaning East and West Germany per se today, but the Germanic world. Now, as we read, Josephus associated Magog with the Scythians. The Scythians were a warlike, semi-nomadic people who lived in the southern steppes of Russia. And they were some of the most powerful people of the ancient world. In fact, as Alexander the Great moved uh, inexorably across Western Asia Minor and crushed every army sent against him, armies five times his size, if we can believe uh, uh, the writings of the ancient historians, uh, were crushed by the armies of Alexander. It was the Scythians only that were able to fight him to a draw. The Scythians alone that he could not defeat. And in honor of them, he did two things. He took a core of Scythian cavalry incorporated into his army and married a Scythian princess. The Scythians, the, the term Scythian is sort of a broad name. You can't use it like you could use the name, let's say, Frenchman today, because Scythian is, is broader than one ethnic group. But obviously these were a uh, uh, Japhethitic <laughs> uh, group of people who were nomadic in their lifestyle and lived in southern Russia. The references in scripture to Magog, of course, can be found also in Ezekiel and Revelation. And most of us know the reference from those sources more so than we do from Genesis. And many feel that because of the references in Ezekiel and in Revelation that the term simply refers to northern tribes. Well, of course, the Scythians were northern tribes to the people who lived in the ancient Near East. They lived in the north. The southern plains of Russia were north of the 
center of the world that we're talking about here in this particular passage. Some feel the term Magog is simply a generic name for all of the anti-God forces in the end times. And, and that's very possibly true. But to try to take Magog and Gog and some of these names and clearly identify them with a particular place today and say this means that and this is what's going to happen in the end times is very dangerous, at least eschatologically dangerous. I don't, probably won't influence your life and mean you won't eat tomorrow, but it, you know, it's, it's hard to make those kinds of direct connections and, and know that you're, you're correct in this because there's not enough clear evidence of that linkage. The association of Madai with the Medes has apparently been so convincing due to both historical and textual contexts that the term Madai has often been translated directly as Medes in Old Testament writings. In fact, in 20 different places where you read the name Mede, it's actually the Hebrew Madai. So it's, it's basically certain that the descendants of Madai were the Medes. And from the Medes came the Persians. The Persians were cousins of the Medes who established themselves in southern Media. And under Cyrus the Great rose up and overthrew their cousins and established the great Medo-Persian Empire, or often just called the Persian Empire. And out of that group of people came the so-called Aryans who moved further to the east and conquered northern India and are the ancestral people to the taller, more fair-skinned Indians of the north vis-a-vis -vis the darker, shorter uh, Indians of South India. And, and they are Indo, quote, that's why we use the term Indo-European for the language because the Sanskritic languages of the North are related to European languages and not to Semitic languages or Hamitic languages. Likewise, there seems to be little doubt referring to Javan. Javan was the father of the Greeks. And four of the 11 times that the word Javan is used in the Old Testament is simply purely translated Greeks. For example, let me just read a passage that does this. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8 verse 20. And you remember the story. The, the vision came along and the vision of the horn, the little horn that rose up and all of this. In verse 20, where the vision is being explained, it says, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. This, this very empire is referring to. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Javan, or Greece, as it's directly translated here. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, Alexander the Great. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. And we know that when Alexander the Great died, his, his empire was broken into four pieces, which ultimately uh, were merged into three. And ultimately all of it, of course, was in the long run overtaken by Rome. So 
If we find that the term Madai and the term Javan are considered to be directly translatable as Medes and Greeks, this would seem to indicate that probably if we knew how to do it, positive identification could be made of the other 68 tribal groups named here. And we could say this is the ancestor of this people. Uh, it just that the historical contextual material doesn't allow us to, to make that direct identification. But it seems the fact that these two can be so directly uh, connected that all 70 must refer to specific peoples. At least logically that would seem to follow. Now, Tubal and Meshach have been generally associated with Asia Minor, what today we call Turkey. And in Ezekiel, for example, they are associated together. In Ezekiel chapter 38, those of you who are in eschatology, of course, this is one of the passages of Scripture that you have read many times, certainly. Let me read the first three verses of Ezekiel chapter 38. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, some eschatologists, that is, teachers of end times things, uh, because of the similarities between these names and some modern names, have tried to establish a equivalency there. And the fact that we're talking about, as you go on in this passage in Ezekiel, that there will be armies from the north attacking southward into the Near East. Some have said, well, the term Rosh is equivalent to Russia, and the term Meshach is equivalent to Moscow, and the term Tubal is equivalent to Tobolsk. Well, I'm not going to tell you that, no, that's not possible to be so, but I would like to say that that's basically guesswork, that there is nothing to, to show that that is true, uh, simply because there is a similarity there. As far as we know, the term Russia came from the ancient Rus, R-U-S, uh, who were a Slavic people that were conquered by the Swedish Vikings who came over into that area in the 7th, 8th centuries or so. Uh, Meshach, as we find it in, in uh, Genesis, seems to have absolutely no relationship to Moscow. And of course, what's Tobolsk? Tubal. Tobolsk. I mean, Tobolsk is just a city in, in uh, Siberian Russia. I mean, there are a lot of more important cities in, in, in Russia than Tobolsk. It's just kind of an outpost out there. No big deal at all. If you're going to deal with a big city, let's go with Novosibirsk. You know, that's the, the, the great heart city, the throbbing center of Siberian Russia. Why, why this puny little place out in nowhere called Tobolsk? It's just because there's a similarity there. There's no direct traceable uh, connection with these particular terms. And what's interesting is nowhere else in Scripture will you have any passage which seems to indicate that the word R-O-S-H, Rosh, refers to a country. In fact, in Hebrew, the word means head. And so, actually, you could probably say here, O Gog, 
head prince, Meshach and Tubal. In other words, it's not a country at all. It's just the word head in Hebrew. And so I think that we just need to be really careful about that. Tubal and Meshach certainly referred to peoples who lived in Turkey in those ancient times, in ancient uh, Asia Minor. I'm not saying this to uh, denigrate any uh, eschatologists. I think that we just need to be careful and that we need to be aware of the fact that it's not an open and closed book or, and that somebody has come along and written the, the, the perfect end times book which puts all little pieces in, places, in, in place and we know now, woo, you know, we're supposed to have this United States of Europe coming together and bango, that's the ten nations, the ten toes, maybe, but maybe not. You know, because for one thing, it's not ten nations. It's more than ten nations if we're going to try to make exact equivalencies here. And look what's happening to Czechoslovakia. What if Czechoslovakia joins and divides into two? Boy, we got lots of trouble. <laughs> so, you know, and, and Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was directly part of the ancient Roman Empire, but it's not very close to becoming a part of the nation of the uh, Western Federation here. And if it does, it's going to be half a dozen nations probably and not a single one. So, you know, I, I think it just means that we need to be careful and we don't just swallow hook, line, and sinker. The next guy comes along and says, this is the way it is in the end times, and I can prove it. Maybe he's right, maybe he's not. The Lord is going to show us what we need to know when we need to know it. Uh, who was it? Uh, I think it was J. Vernon McGee was saying, and he said it so many times, he says, we have yet to see God said, send on this planet somebody who is able to teach the book of Revelation so that it really becomes an open book to us. It's still a closed book. And that, you know, from somebody who had taught it and studied it for, for many, many, many decades. Not that he's the gospel truth in everything either. According to Josephus, Tyrus was the ancestor of the Thracians. As such, this would mean that they were located in Western Asia Minor and in Thrace, which is that extension of Greece. If you remember, you know, picture Greece in your mind, the extension that goes over to the east and uh, where Constantinople, or Istanbul as it's called today, uh, is located. They may have been the ancestors of the Etruscans. If so, that's a very, very interesting connection. Now, I don't know if the Etruscan, the term Etruscan means much to you, but the Etruscans were a very, very important people who established a kingdom in northern Italy. And the Etruscans, if you were to go over there today, they, they still call that part of Italy Tuscany. And uh, they established a 12-city uh, confederation there that was extremely influential upon the Romans. And of course, it was the Roman world into which Christianity was born. So the, the role of the Etruscans was to be very important, and they may have been the descendants of Tyrus here. Now, only the sons of Gomer and Javan are mentioned in verses 3 and 4, possibly because they are the only ones whose descendants produce clearly identifiable separate people groups. In other words, the other children stayed right within the people group of their father and didn't form a separate group as the grandchildren the sons, that is, of Gomer and Javan apparently did. Now, some have associated the term Ashkenazi with the Scythians. And there seems to be strong support for that. 
But it's an interesting little sidelight here. Ashkenaz is the Jewish name for Germany. And the Jews who come from Germanic-dominated Europe are called Ashkenazi Jews today in Israel. Now, the only biblical reference to Ashkenaz other than this one, and of course, if you turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 1, you have a repeat of all this in, in, in a summarizing Hebrew genealogy that begins with Adam and goes all the way through, is this passage that I've listed for you on the outline in Jeremiah chapter 51. I'd like to read that verse, Jeremiah 51, verse 27. Lift up a signal in the land, blow a trumpet among the nations. Consecrate the nations against her. Summon against her the kingdoms of Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. Appoint a marshal against her. Bring up the horses like bristly locusts. Now the actual word here behind Ararat is Urartu. Urartu and Mini were ancient kingdoms that were located in eastern Turkey. We know the exact location or, you know, approximate location of those kingdoms. In fact, Urartu is the kingdom that grew up in the area of Mount Ararat. And many was an associated nearby kingdom. Ashkenaz being associated with those would seem to place that people group in that area, which would make the connection with the Scythians very likely. Again, quoting the Greeks, Josephus tells us that Ryphath was the founder of the Paphlagonians, who were a people who lived in Asia Minor, and Togarma of the Frisians. Have you heard of the Frisians? You have. You may not realize it, but you have. All of us have heard of King Midas, right? Of the Golden Touch. Well, he was a real king of the Frisians. We've also heard of Gordius, the king who tied the Gordian knot. Have you ever used the term the Gordian knot? Oh, this problem is a Gordian knot. Maybe you don't use that term, but uh, that, that, that refers to a problem that seems to be insoluble because according to legend, King Gordius tied, lashed his uh, chariot to a pole with, with an intricate knot with the ends hidden so you couldn't tell where to start pulling on this knot. And the legend was that the person who could untie this knot will be the ruler of all Asia. And of course the story goes that Alexander the Great came there, looked at that knot, whipped out his sword and whoosh, <laughs> There, I'm the ruler of all Asia, you know. He was a pragmatist sometimes. Not much of a philosopher at all times, although he was the student of a great philosopher, Aristotle. But uh, the, the Frisians were a very, very important people who preceded the Hittites, whom, as we'll be talking about uh, probably next week or the week after that, were a very important people even in the context of Israel or Canaan itself. Now, traditionally, there's been little debate over the next few. Elisha has basically been agreed to have been the father of those who peopled the islands of the, of the Aegean. In other words, directly related through intermarriage to the Greeks. Katim is almost always associated with the island of Cyprus. 
in fact, is translated Cyprus in several places in Scripture. For example, in Isaiah, the, the term Katim is simply translated Cyprus. Now, Cyprus, you remember, is that large island off the coast of the Levant, south of Turkey and, and uh, west of Syria. However, it's interesting that the term Katim may simply be a generic term for the West. Looking in Daniel again, chapter 11. Have you ever studied Daniel chapter 11 very carefully? Very, very interesting passage. I know that uh, Professor Walmark back here has taught the intertestamental period uh, many times, and uh, this, this, of course, seems to be a passage which deals with some of the events of the intertestamental period. But look at verse 30 of Daniel chapter 11. For the ships of Katim, and if you have a marginal note as I have in my Bible, it says that is Cyprus, will come against him. Therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action so that he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Now this has been interpreted in many ways, and some, some people feel that this passage refers to end times events, but it seems to have been a prophecy of the events that would take place during the intertestamental period. And uh, this seems to refer to the period of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And there was a point in time in which he invaded Egypt, and basically, Egypt had appealed to Rome for protection. And so ambassadors from Rome basically came down there and told Antiochus Epiphanes, you either bug off or you are going to have trouble with Rome. And so where it says, for the ships of Katim will come against him, many have interpreted this as being the ships of Rome or ships from the west, which would be, of course, Rome. And, of course, that doesn't mean that Cyprus couldn't have been the base from which they came at that particular time, even though Roman influence in the eastern Mediterranean was relatively small at that particular moment in history. Uh, but it was growing very rapidly as the Greek world was succumbing to the arms of Rome in the second century before Christ. Then you have, finally, not finally, but next to finally, Dodanim, which has basically, in, in Chronicles, it's not, yes, First Chronicles, it's Rodanim. And uh, generally speaking, it's just always been considered to be the island of Rhodes. Now, you know, you and I, not being Europeans, probably think, why would it refer to some rinky-dink little island? You know, Cyprus, we even think, is a rinky-dink little island sometimes. But if you have a Near Eastern or a European view of things, these islands become very, very important because Cyprus will learn, loom largely, and so will Rhodes historically and be very uh, significant uh, places from which peoples would uh, dominate, literally dominate parts of the Mediterranean world. Now, the fourth individual mentioned here and the last one is Tarshish. Tarshish is a little more complicated. The term shows up 27 times in the Old Testament, far more than any of these others that we have considered here, more times than Gog or Magog or Javan or any of these others. You have this term Tarshish. 
showing up. The many references seem to indicate that, for example, Tarshish was a great commercial nation, people, and that rich commodities were produced and traded by the people of Tarshish, that it was a great seafaring commercial nation or people. Solomon, we're told, sent ships to, uh, to Tarshish. Isaiah prophesied against Tarshish as, of course, a great example of worldliness. And Jonah, you remember, tried to flee to Tarshish. And God said, no. Now, where was Tarshish? It's a good question. When you get the answer, let me know. <laughs> uh, many feel it was probably Spain, southern Spain. Others argue for even Britain. Some say Sardinia. There are various possibilities. It's kind of interesting for us to be aware of the fact that we know so little about some aspects of ancient geography and ancient history that a place like this cannot be clearly and specifically identified. We can only generally know of its existence and therefore not directly know of its location. Now, the coastal nature of these nations referred to here, especially those of Jabin's sons, are referred to in verse 5. And uh, it's interesting that Matthew Henry, as he looks at this, says that this seems to refer to the broader scope of the spread of the European peoples around the world, and hence ultimately because of the words of the prophets, refers to the uh, coming of the gospel to the sons of Japheth as they're spread through the coastlands and islands of the world, which could mean, of course, the Americas even. Now, many prophets, um, late-time prophets, I should, shouldn't use the word prophets, eschatologists are, have been trying to put America into prophecy and try to find out where we are there. <laughs> And as you know, some say, oh, it, we're not there at all. Others say, well, no, it refers to this, the, uh, you know, the whelps of the lion or the eagle or whatever, somehow symbolic of the United States. We're in the end times. And certainly the United States is part of the end times, regardless of whether we can identify it specifically in Scripture. But certainly we are the descendants of Japheth, for the most part. And you remember we read the scripture that Japheth and Shem will dwell together, not indicating necessarily physical dwelling together, but that the people of Japheth will be more open and friendly towards the people of Shem. And we look today at the United States, and during this recent elder hostel uh, group, I had a chance to talk for a couple of minutes to one of the Jewish individuals who was there, and uh, he noted the fact that evangelical Christians sometimes are uh, very, very favorable to modern Israel almost indiscriminately. You know, they favor Israel no matter what Israel does, and he doesn't even feel that that's right because he admits the Israeli government many times does wrong things and that the Arabs do have some right on their side. And that, you know, Christians ought to be more discriminating if they really believe what they teach. 
But certainly we today believe in a Jewish Messiah. And that Jewish Messiah was a descendant of Shem, a Shemite, a Semite, if you will. And so we as the descendants of Japheth, in effect, do dwell in the tents of Shem in the sense that we believe in the Messiah who came as a descendant of Shem. The very last reference in this passage to the separation of these nations according to their languages, of course, is looking forward to chapter 11. Chapter 10 is not chronologically, does not chronologically precede chapter 11. In chapter 11, you have the Tower of Babel incident, the breaking up of the people into various language groups, and that, of course, is what precipitated what we read about in chapter 10 in the scattering of these people into the 70 primary people groups from which all today have descended. The next passage in Genesis, which we will not uh, go into today, has some very, very interesting characters in it, most specifically Nimrod. It deals with the sons of Ham. And, of course, as you see there, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. <clears throat> 